1: Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
0: I did have an opportunity yesterday to speak with the Parliamentary Budget Officer, Yves Giroux, a popular guest on this program. And one of the things he's doing, and it's the second election he's allowed to do that, we'll talk to you later in just a moment, is they're providing costing, or he will provide costing, for campaign proposals by political parties during the election campaign. Here's how the interview went with Yves Giroux, on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Monsieur Giroud, thanks very much for joining us on the program today. Let me start by asking you, since we're expecting to have an election call tomorrow, uh, you're making uh, available to the federal parties a report on the costing of their programs. Speak to us about that, please. This is the second time you're doing that, isn't it?
1: Yes, that's true. So first time was in... 2019 and it's a new feature in legislation so my enabling legislation was amended in 2017 allowing federal parties to ask my office to cost proposals that they are planning on making during an electoral campaign so the first time this service was made available to parties was in the 2019 election campaign and if there's an election triggered soon as is widely expected parties will also have the opportunity to ask me to cost proposals that they are planning on making. Um, it's uh, at the request of parties, they they're under no obligation to ask me to cost their proposals, but it's offered to them uh, for free so that when they make these promises, they can have the um, this the guarantee or the professional um, opinion of independent and nonpartisan officials such as the staff working in my office so that the costing is the best estimate possible
0: how often did they do that do you recall how often they asked you for costing in 2019
1: sure they asked costings in 2019 on 200 occasions slightly more than 200 occasions and of these more than 200 costings that they asked uh, my office they ended up releasing slightly over 100 of these proposals so it means that they either didn't like the cost or Thought it was too expensive, or changed the uh, changed the the approach that they were planning on initially making in the 2019 election. That's uh, all parties can, confounded.
0: You and I have on uh, several occasions talked about the uh, the size of the deficit, also the size of the national debt, and uh, you had mentioned to me, I believe, that the federal government is able to sustain the debt. But the province is not so much. What is, our, what is our deficit reality now? What is our national debt reality? And where does that place the, the federal government as far as its fiscal uh, uh, parameters, freedoms are concerned?
1: So if there is an, indeed an election that's triggered, we will be releasing shortly after uh, an economic and fiscal baseline on which parties could, could base their own platforms and their uh, fiscal frameworks. So what we estimate, without getting into the specifics, is that the deficit in the year that ended on March 31st, 2021, will be upwards of $300 billion, and the deficit for the current year will be about $130-140 billion, assuming that there are no additional spending items uh, being made uh, and incurred in the current fiscal year. And for the debt, that means that the debt-to-GDP ratio will, it has likely crossed the 50% threshold, which is still uh, below the peak that it reached in the mid-1990s of 66.6%, I think. So still uh, some room from the peak, but as you mentioned, it's not the same situation at the provincial level, because provinces have expenditures that are expected to rise significantly over the coming years and even decades, namely uh, healthcare in relation to the aging of the population, even though they have lower debt-to-GDP ratios for the most part, um, their uh, prospects are not uh, as good. So they're likely to be faced with ever-increasing deficits unless significant action is is taken to correct the course.
0: Mm. And ultimately, there is only one taxpayer, whether it's provincial or federal. There's only one taxpayer.
1: Indeed, it's the same taxpayer supporting municipal, provincial, and federal uh, deficits and debt services.
0: Uh, Mr. Giroux, in June, you provided an assessment of the impact of the federal government's plan to exceed the 2030 target for Canada's greenhouse gas emissions under the Paris Agreement. COP26 is just around the corner. Would you speak to us please about that, uh, the assessment of the impacts of the government's plan to exceed the 2030 target?
1: Yeah, so the government uh, indicated its commitment to go beyond the Paris targets and to further reduce greenhouse gas emissions in a more ambitious manner than what it had agreed to under the Paris Accord. And it's estimating that it will need to further reduce greenhouse gas emission by several megatons. And it plans on doing that by increasing the carbon levy, which is uh, scheduled to reach $50 per ton. uh, And it will need to increase that by an additional $120 per ton to $170 per ton by 2030. And introduce uh, regulatory measures to reach that target. And we've estimated that These regulatory measures, even though they're not a tax, they'll also have costs. So their equivalent cost will be $91 $91 per ton of CO2 emissions avoided. And we estimated that this will have an impact on GDP of about 1.4% in 2030 when these measures are fully phased in. So um, even though it's not a carbon tax, they have these measures will also have an impact on GDP, and we estimate about 1.4%.
0: How would you assess our our fiscal reality uh, in Canada at the moment? Because uh, you've also, and uh, this goes back to May of this year, you released uh, information about higher interest rates, dampening the stimulative impact of Budget 2021 when we finally received that budget. How would you estimate, how would you assess our fiscal reality now?
1: Well the fiscal reality when we when we released our fiscal sustainability report looking at the long-term trends is that the federal government is still fiscally sustainable over the long term under current policies and that's assuming that the COVID-19 support measures are allowed to expire as scheduled. So fiscally sustainable yes but barely when you look at the federal situation The situation is more complex when you look at provinces, as we alluded to. So, provinces are not fiscally sustainable over the medium to longer term. And when we combine both the federal and provincial governments, that's where we find that governments overall are not fiscally sustainable if we take them as a big, big block. So, if you look at the federal government in isolation, a sustainable situation, still some room to increase spending or reduce taxes or a combination of both, but not the case at the provincial level. And combining both, um, we find that the situation is not sustainable over the very long term, assuming, of course, status quo policies. And that's a big assumption.
0: Yeah, and is it also assuming status quo as far as interest rates are concerned? Because how much of a margin is there if, if interest rates do rise?
1: Well, that's assuming that interest rates go back to their neutral level, and by neutral, we assume it's the level that they need to reach to uh, be non-stimulative, so not stimulate the economy, but not restrict the economy. So we assume steady-state interest rates, and these would uh, would rise by a couple of percentage points, a few percentage points, in fact. So that's assuming that they return to... Uh, uh, short-term rates of 225 2.25 to 2.5 percent if my memory serves me right so it factors some increase in interest rates but nowhere near the levels that we saw uh, for example 20 25 years ago
0: I was reading a, a story a news story um, from the 10th of uh, this month so last week earlier in the week. Canada's housing strategy having limited impact on housing need, PBO says. That would be you, of course. Uh, In a report published this morning, so the 10th of August, Budget Officer Yves Giroux says Ottawa topped up expenditures on its national housing strategy by nearly one quarter for an average of $3.7 billion annually over the past three years. What effect has that money, that increase had? So it's, it's increased the
1: nominal level of spending, so which is a good increase, a significant increase, but in real terms, if you take into account the fact that housing costs have increased and a dollar of investment in housing doesn't buy you the same thing now that it used to buy three, four, five years ago. So in real terms, it means that the the value the purchasing power of these federal dollars has gone down by about 15%. And the fact that CMHC, which is the main provider of federal support, has shifted its focus from direct subsidies to assist with um, housing affordability, for example, by subsidizing rents, has shifted more towards subsidizing capital expenditures, for example, by helping with construction costs, of affordable housing, so each dollar has a smaller impact on the immediate affordability and that each dollar of investment by CMHC or expenditure uh, has an impact that's spread over the lifetime of these capital projects as opposed to having an immediate impact. So with CMHC shifting away from rent subsidies towards more capital investments, they support our Spread over a longer time period, but contribute less immediately to housing affordability. Okay. So, that that's one of the main impacts that we found. Okay,
0: so we have, and that's one aspect of the taking care of those who are or assisting those who require assistance in our in our society. There's also a great concern and an emotional concern as well, since the arrival of COVID, COVID rather, and that is long-term care for seniors and uh, you provide an assessment of a, a parliamentary motion of the cost for improving long-term care for seniors tell us what you found please
1: yeah um, so it's uh mr paul manley a green mp or mp from the green party who tabled that motion m77 that called for increasing the number of hours of care uh, for seniors in long-term care homes, uh, increasing the availability of these spaces and increasing the wages of uh, those working in, in, these, um, in these facilities. And we found that increasing the number of long-term care beds for seniors to meet the needs, the current needs, uh, would require 52,000 additional beds at a cost of $3.1 billion per year. Increasing the average wages uh, for persons providing long-term care in the private sector and nonprofit sector to align them with those in the public sector would cost $1.1 billion a year, and that would mean an increase of about $3 an hour for into their wages to reach $25 on average. Uh, increasing the number, number of hours of care to reach an average of four hours of direct care per resident would also come at a significant price tag or $4.1 billion each year. And the motion also asked to increase the number of hours of publicly funded home care. So for those who can and prefer to stay at home um, would cost $5.2 billion of uh, uh, each year. So significant cost for a total of $13.7 billion per year if all the elements of the motion were implemented
0: yeah it all adds up doesn't it um and that's that's of course uh, the function that you perform is reminding us of what uh, our fiscal reality is in as far as federal government is concerned mrs Giroux, i'm not quite sure how to how to phrase this uh, but let me let me do my best if there are areas where you have concern about spending or where the fiscal reality is where would that be? Perhaps I could I, I could ask it this way. Are there amber light and red light issues for you as far as the federal government's um, uh, first is concerned?
1: Um, there are certainly amber lights, and, and these relate to the prospect for economic growth. And I'm not the only one saying that. Many economists have been saying the same thing for a number of years. Productivity growth in Canada, which is the best way to to Collectively get richer. Productivity growth has not been uh, what it should or could be in Canada. So there is room for further investments by the private and public sectors together or private sector, whatever you want to characterize that. But a productivity enhancements are probably the best way for us to collectively get richer. And business investments are not keeping pace with our countries, and and that's something that puts us collectively at risk of falling behind in terms of wealth per person, collective wealth, innovation, and so that's that's something that to me is an amber light in this country. All right, Mr. It's not very sexy, but it's something that would greatly increase our collective wealth.
0: Yeah, Mr. Zuru, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks very much for taking the time today.
1: Always a pleasure.
0: So there's the uh, interview with uh, Yves Giroux. When you hear those numbers, they're staggering. And then when you realize that it's numbers that we're responsible for as taxpayers, because ultimately there's only, one, there's only one person who has money, and that's the taxpayer. Well, we have money till the government takes it away from us. And then they have a responsibility to judiciously spend it. And people sometimes say governments spend like drunken sailors, and I've always said I've been a drunken sailor. And I spent more judiciously then than governments do now. I know what it feels like to be a drunken sailor. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green.